Amen. Amen. Man, it's good to be back here with y'all today and have an opportunity to head towards the end of the book of Colossians. If you want to go ahead and open up to Colossians chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 5 and 6. That's where we're going to spend our time this morning. As we get into verses 5 and 6, you'll remember that the Apostle Paul left off uh, in a section just immediately prior, and he was asking that the church there in Colossae would pray that a door would be open for the word. And that when this door was open, that Paul would be able to step in and that he would speak as he was supposed to, that he would engage in an appropriate manner with the gospel. So now he, here he turns and he begins to address the matter of speech as it pertains to the entire church. And so, in essence, how speech and how our words impact those around us. And so it got me thinking, and I remembered... Uh, This verse out of Proverbs, so Proverbs 18 and verse 21, says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. So we recognize that in some sense, words stick with us. We remember powerful words, we remember powerful phrases. And so a couple examples for us, you remember when you were in school and you had to learn portions of Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, He said these famous words, four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal, back in 1863. In 1961, at JFK's inaugural address, we remember the famous words, and he said, and so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. And over the course of our life, we remember words people have said to us. And some of the words that we remember that people have said to us sting, they're painful. We remember people looking at us and and saying, uh, you're not very talented. We remember people looking at us and offering commentary on our life and saying, you're not very smart. You're not very strong. You're not a good person. And the sting of those words echoes within uh, the walls of our mind and travels around and frequently inform us who we are. In moments when we are tempted to despair, we recall those words and, and, and they echo within our minds. And then we tie those words to actions and opportunities and times we failed and they're reinforcing our failures. And we remember those words because words are powerful. Some of us as parents remember the times when we said things to our children that we wish we could take back. We remember just a moment too late when we've uttered that thing, when we've said that thing, that we've spoken into our children something that at the core of who we are, we don't want to be said of them, that we would not appreciate anybody else uttering those things. But in that moment, we were too fast and we said it. Rare, sometimes we remember these wonderful things people have said to us. The wonderfully redemptive words that people have spoken over us in in our lives. The encouragement that they have lent to us, the ways they have seen through the mass and confusion that so oftentimes we make of our lives when they've called us out of the clutter and out of the fray, and they've called us to the encouragement of the gospel, and they've called us to the embrace of their friendship. I mean, if you're in this room and you're a follower and a believer of Jesus Christ, then at some point you heard the words, come in, you are forgiven. 
You heard the declaration of the gospel that God in the fullness of time sent his son Jesus to take on the penalty and the punishment for your sin, for your death, the thing that you rightly were owed. Because you had transgressed against a holy God, the wrath of God was coming for you. But in the fullness of time, in the goodness of God, he sent his son Jesus to die for you. And then in some moment over the course of your life, someone spoke those words to you. And the gospel resonated in your heart. And you found yourself being set free from sin. Being set free from being a a debtor to sin. Being enslaved to sin, and you found those words creating life and life anew in you. Man, words have tremendous weight. Words have tremendous power. Whether they be historical words that we remember and we are perhaps occasionally encouraged by, whether they are hurtful words that have scarred us or healthy words we've spoken or have spoken to us, words are indeed powerful. So the Apostle Paul leaves to this church there in Colossae some instruction on how to use their words that are incredibly helpful for us today in this moment. Look at what he says in verses 5 and 6. He says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. One of the great things about this passage is that it, it, it speaks to the reality that on occasion Christians are especially good at walling off their private lives. Walling off their lives. And, and, and so some of us, our approach to outsiders, our approach to people outside of the church is just to kind of cordon them off. We don't have anything to do with them because we are worried how it might affect us. And some of us as parents, this is the approach in a very real sense that we've taken to our children. And so some of us, the reasons we homeschool, the reason we pull our families back is because we are afraid of the effect our children that will be had upon our children from the world. Now, that's not true of all of us, but it is certainly true of some of us. But look at what Paul says here. He doesn't say avoid people from the outside. He doesn't say shun them. He doesn't say uh, uh, stay away from them. Paul, pulling from the idea of Jesus, engages and calls those around him to engage those outside the faith. Because they desperately need the gospel. And from where else are they supposed to get the gospel? Well, nowhere else. They're supposed to get the gospel from you. They're supposed to see it in how you live. They're supposed to hear it in how you speak. They're supposed to read it in what you type. They need the gospel, and they need the gospel from you. But look at what Paul says. He says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Now, back in chapter 2 and verse 6, Paul said, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. So we recognize that immediately when it comes to this idea of walking, And being engaged and being useful and being powerful and potent in the world, first and foremost, we need to seek to be faithful in all things to Christ. Can we agree on that? We need to seek to be faithful to Christ in all things. And so there are occasions, there are opportunities, there are uh, engagements where you are out and in the world when someone will come to you and they will say something and you will find yourself having to disagree. But the manner of your disagreement doesn't get to be unloving the manner of your disagreement doesn't get to be graceless this is why he says you need to walk in wisdom towards outsiders 
Now, Jesus was so prolific in his engagement of outsiders, of those outside the faith, of those in need of redemption, that it was said of him that Jesus was a glutton and a drunkard. They said, listen, he has way too much table fellowship with these people. He eats too much. He drinks too much. They said, Jesus parties it up too much. He is the type of guy, he is making religion look bad. Jesus is a glutton. He is a drunkard. And look what he said. He said that he is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And you and I are called to walk in Jesus. You and I are called to be faithful to Jesus. If we are, as a church, going to be a people who are faithful to Jesus, then we must be, as a church, people who are engaging those outside the church. If your primary method of engaging people is you happen to find yourself sitting beside someone in a pew you don't know, and you well up inside you in your heart, and you're thinking, please be lost, please be lost, please be lost right that's weird but it's further terrible it's not just weird it's terrible you need to purpose to find yourself coming across people who don't know jesus jesse spoke on this in a previous sermon but simply you need to break your regular patterns you need to set up and create opportunities either in grocery stores or calling telemarketers reverse you need to find ways and opportunities to engage lost people with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you need to do it wisely. You need to engage in wisdom. And some of what this means for us as a church and for us as a people is getting information from more than one source. Not taking in all of your information and all of your worldview from Fox News. Not, not hearing the world and taking, taking everything in and thinking this is the only way to see the world. We see the world as a Christian through the worldview and the lens of the gospel. But we learn about lost people not primarily about what talking heads on television say about them. How would you feel? How would you feel if every person that you disagreed with philosophically, politically took in and believed absolutely, absolutely everything about you that they've ever heard from the most liberal, in your mind, supply the person, repugnant, terrible TV personality you've ever seen. Well, you would say, this is a gross mixed characterization of who I am. I, I, I don't do these things. I don't kiss my sister on the mouth. I don't, I, like, I'm not this person. I'm not this person. For those of you who do, there's a separate sermon that follows this on insects. We need to be students of the world so that we know how to engage people. We need to know their perspective and their worldview and their philosophies. And we need to teach our children to critically engage with the world. And you cannot get there solely by watching cable television. You cannot get there solely by reading and listening to people who agree with you. We need to be students of the world because the world desperately needs us to be able to speak courageously and directly to their worldview, to challenge its assumptions as we invite them to challenge ours. This is what the world needs, and this is what would make us more effective and impactful. We need to walk in wisdom towards outsiders. We need to be like Jesus, where we are spending time with them, hoping to impact them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now look what he says. He says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of time. Now, uh, uh, on the surface, you might be able to take this and, and think, oh, what Paul's primarily talking about here is 
is ingenuity. What Paul's primarily talking about here is being a good steward of my time. But that's not what he's suggesting. Paul is writing in such a way to say that you need to leverage your time to spend it to engage with people who need to hear the gospel. Now, why would he say this and why would he suggest this? He says this because none of us know how much time we have left. None of us know that whether or not today we will leave, we'll get in a car, we'll drive down Wesley Street, and we won't be one of the many people who get in an accident on that street. None of us know that if this afternoon as we go back home that the sky will be peeled back and Christ will return. None of us are able to know how many more days, how many more hours, how many more seconds do we have left. So Paul looks at it and he says, listen, when you go to work tomorrow... Uh, and, and when you go to the grocery store, and when you go to, to the theme park, and, and, and when you send your kids to school, you need to be equipping your kids to engage their classmates with the gospel. You need to be equipped to engage the parents of your children's friends with the gospel. You need to be engaged and equipped and urgent about engaging people. You need to make the best use of the time. Well, this radically calls us and challenges our use of time. And so we consider, oh, is it a good idea to sit here and watch the, the whole series of The Office this weekend? Well, you challenged me. Well, I guess I'm just going to do it. I would submit that's probably not a good use of your time. Not because it's not a terrific television show, but because there are better things that you might do with your time. Christian, the gospel should say something about the way you use time. And because the gospel says something about the plight of a lost person, and because God has sent you as an ambassador to engage lost people, when you have that understanding and you have your understanding of how time should be used and that time is short and that time is running out and none of us know how much time we're going to have left, that those two things come together and they give us a sense of urgency and they commission us and send us out and we are found to be busy at work for the gospel of Jesus Christ, engaging people we'd otherwise rather not spend time with. And so a simple prayer for us is, God, change my heart toward those who need the gospel. Help them not to be seen in my eyes and felt in my heart as a radical impediment to my exploration of freedom. And simply put, help them not to be an inconvenience to me. Help me not to act as if they're an inconvenience. Help me instead to act as if they're a person desperately in need of the gospel of Jesus Christ, desperately in need of me displaying and extending to them your mercy and grace, beckoning them to come to the gospel. We are not watering down the gospel in these engagements. We're simply watering down some of our attitudes. We're watering down some of our opinions. And we're extending the gospel and inviting people to respond. So with this mindset and this attitude, this evaluation of the lost person, this esteem of the lost person, and this declaration of their plight, Paul turns and look at what he says in verse 6. He says, let your speech always be, everybody say gracious. Now believe it. Let your speech be gracious. The literal rending of this word is to be in or with grace. He says, let your speech be gracious, seasoned as with salt. And so we have this understanding that when you are engaging with someone who agrees with you, how much easier is it to be gracious? Somebody walks up and they find that you have a Trump 2020 flag flapping in the breeze. And they walk up and they say, isn't he the greatest leader in the world? And you're like, amen, praise Jesus, he sure is. He's just the greatest ever. 
I don't know why you talk like that when you speak of him. This is just super creepy. But that's the voice you use. You know it. And so, but if, if that's who you are and you have that flag flapping in the breeze, standing for freedom, and somebody walks up to you and, and they say, listen, I'm here with the Biden-Harris campaign, and we would like to talk to you about how you can get this bonehead out of the White House and how you can elect true leaders and revolutionaries for the future of America. Can I talk to you? Suddenly your voice changes. And you go from praise Jesus, hallelujah, to I will eat you. Off of my property, wretch. That's just scary. Like to everyone. To your neighbors, to your children, to your dog who you haven't seen in a week. Because it heard you speak to it like that. We have to speak graciously to people we disagree with. Because people you disagree with philosophically, people you disagree with politically, are still worthy to be extended to the gospel. Amen? So look what he says here. Paul has in mind not people that you fundamentally find yourself agreeing with and saying, yes, macaroni and cheese is the best thing ever. Yes, Ernie's barbecue is the best in Greenville. Yes, Fort Worth is superior to Dallas. And you would all say, amen, amen. Looking at you, Chase. There's still redemption for you to be had. But he has in mind not people who you agree with, but people you would radically disagree with. And this is where it gets to be important, Christian. And we live in a polarized day and time. The mask issue and science and, and politics and, and people disagreeing with facts and all playing with the same information but, but reporting radically different things have made it more difficult to be gracious. But in making it more difficult to be gracious, it's more surprising when you meet someone with graciousness. When somebody comes to you and they're dripping with venom and they're so incredibly frustrated because they know where you stand on certain things and they're just un, un, unleashing on you and, and just spewing venom all over you and you don't respond in kind. But instead you say, and I'm so thankful that you could share your perspective with me. And you know when you came in that I don't agree with much of what you said. And I can tell you from where I stand, I don't necessarily appreciate the tone you use or what you said about my mother. But thank you for sharing your opinion. And I value you as a person. I'd love to share my perspective with you on these things. There's no hate. There's no hostility. And you can't determine how somebody responds to that. I found on occasion, and this is just kind of my response, and it drives my wife nuts, the, the more escalated things get, the calmer I get. And sometimes I found that doesn't work really well, because they begin to read into it, I see you getting calm. And it's just like catnip for the angry, right? I see you getting calm. But as a Christian in that moment, don't be fearful, Jesus is on your side. But there's still the call to be gracious. And there's still a call to testify to the goodness of the gospel. We testify to the goodness of gospel and how we act and how we speak. And we base these things on and we are fueled for the fire by spending time with Jesus. And him encouraging us and sending us out under the authority of the Holy Spirit. So when someone comes up to you and they're pouring out venom, we respond graciously. When someone shreds you in your worldview on an online platform... Probably the best thing for you to do is not respond publicly. Because let me know you how that goes. Let me tell you how that goes for you. In a word, poorly. 
This is just how it's going to go. This is not a, this is not a, a location and a place for the free exchange of ideas. This is a place to be polarized and terrible and awful. And to respond terribly and awfully and in a polarized manner. For whatever reason, that's just what it's become. It used to just be Twitter and it was terrible, but it was limited to 120 and then it expanded the character count and it got worse. And then it moved to Facebook and now it's headed towards Instagram at a breakneck pace. Oh my goodness, there's no safe harbor online. But still, Christian, your call isn't to respond in a snarky manner. Your call isn't to put people in their place. Your call is to be gracious because the door for the gospel that Paul spoke about can be slammed shut with the words out of your mouth. The door Paul said you need to pray that a door be opened for the word to come through can be closed and and may not be opened again for you in engagement with that person because of what you said in that moment or what you did in that occasion. We have a time and an opportunity now to be gracious when very few people in our culture want to. We can do that to submitting to authority that we would otherwise royal against. We can do that in not sharing every opinion that pops into our head. It stumbles out of our mouth like we're falling down the stairs and saying, Up there I am, up there I am, up there I am. We must be gracious. Paul doesn't say just be gracious as if you're like, okay, listen, I know you're a radically offensive person, but let me just be gracious to you as I'm moving away, as I'm moving away, as I'm, and now they can't hear me anymore. And so I'm like, whoa, what a terrible person. Have you met him? And you find out you're talking to his mother, and she has. But he says, listen, don't just be gracious, but your speech needs to be seasoned as with salt. And this is what he's saying here. When someone speaks with a Christian, Your speech should invite them into deeper and further conversation. When he says that your speech needs to be your speech needs to be seasoned as with salt, he's not talking about this curative medicine where you need to apply it to their lives where your speech stings them, but it's doing a good thing for the gospel, and God's just like, yeah. Just rub that salt in their wounds and rub that salt in their wounds. No, that's not what he's saying. You can see it in Plutarch and others in the first century and beyond. When he writes and he's talking about speech in this way, what he's saying is you're adding flavor to the conversation. You need to be winsome with your arguments. They need to be cleverly articulated and formed. You're not just responding with sound bites that you've heard or read. You're treating this person on the other side as someone made in the image and the likeness of God. And by virtue of continuing on in this conversation with you, seeing your graciousness and hearing what you say, they find themselves unwittingly being drawn into deeper and deeper conversation. To the point where they might walk away from you and say, you know what, I radically disagree with everything he or she said, but I found myself wanting to hear more. That's a high bar. How many people have you seen this week do that? How many times have you heard yourself this week do that? Most of us lately. Maybe this is just kind of, of, kind of who we are and, and some of this is showing it. But most of us lately enter into conversations and discussions to win them. We want to win the argument. We want to destroy the argument or make it to appear ridiculous of the people on the other side that we're speaking to. And you may win that. Then you can win that and you can kick back with your buddies. You can win that and you can sit around coffee and drink it with your friends and recount that story. And they're going to say, that is amazing. I bet they felt this big. 
you can win the conversation and lose the person. Paul's words, you need to be gracious in the way that you speak to them. It needs to draw them in to deeper and deeper conversation. Jesus speaking on words in Matthew chapter 12 and verses 34 through 37. Now listen, he didn't have these words for lost people. He didn't have these words for sinners and tax collectors. He didn't have these words for the wayward and the needy. He had these words for the religious and the self-approved. He says, you brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. Now look at what he goes on to say. He says, I tell you that on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified. And by your words you will be condemned. Our words have radical consequences. As a Christian, I think you could even make the argument that our words can have eternal consequences. Some of us have have been a part of slamming the door on a conversation so hard that it would be almost impossible, definitely humanly speaking impossible, to see that door once again open for the gospel. In every engagement we have, it would radically transform how we approach them and how we speak to people. If we wouldn't see that person and what they're saying is an argument to be one, but we see that person and their soul as something hanging in the balance. We would recognize the weight and the gravity of the words that God has given us. And we would call them to embrace and to engage with God and to receive his forgiveness. The most important thing we can do this year in this election season, in this COVID madness, is to gloriously display the gospel of Jesus Christ in how we speak and how we treat other people. Let our speech be seasoned with salt. Paul personalizes it and says, listen, this isn't just one approach for you. This isn't just that you would go in and say, I've got this speech that I give to diehard liberals if you're a conservative, and I got this speech that I give to the Trump 2020 people if you're a liberal, politically liberal. It's not just a one-size-fits-all. It's not just a one response to people. I just want to end this conversation where you walk up and I'm talking to Clay and come to find out that he believes in all kinds of things that I don't believe in. And I say, that's a good truth for you, buddy. And I just move on. God bless you. I mean that. That's not what he's calling us to do. He's calling us to stay engaged in this conversation, to continue to hear this person, to continue to try to be heard by this person to be gracious, to employ salt in our words, and to have a different approach for every person. We need to be a student of the culture. We need to be a student of the word. We need to be students of how to engage people interpersonally. We have the gospel. We need to be certain that we are being careful at communicating it well. This is why the Apostle Paul wrote to them, he says, listen, you need to pray that I would share the gospel in such a way that is clear, that is concise. A number of years ago, when we first began For the City, we had a a gathering here at Ridgecrest, and Slack Brown, who passed away this week, was the first person to preach at it. 
and, and Slack's up here and he's going on and he's preaching and it's animated and it's engaged. And there's this guy that kind of sat right back over in this area and he'd be going for a little while and that guy would call out, make it plain, make it plain. And he'd preach on a little bit more and you'd hear, make it plain. And he'd preach on a little bit harder and he'd say, make it plain. And he'd preach on a little bit more and they'd say, time's up. <laughs> We need to be gracious. We need to be seasoning our speech with salt. Paul says it so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. The Greek says each one. There's something amazing in every single interpersonal interaction we have, every single one-to-one conversation we have. That in that conversation, you're feeling them out with their words, they're feeling you out with your words. And for the Christian, what should be happening in this moment is we're praying, Lord, give me the words, give me the insight, help me know how to turn this conversation to be eternal. Help me know how to show them your love, help me know how to invite them to receive you. Notice Jesus' interactions in the Gospels, they were varied and different. He meets the woman in the well in John 4 and he begins to have a conversation with her about things of eternal value and he turns it from regular water to himself, the living water. He talks about her past, which is checkered. But he invites her to experience freedom. In Luke 19, Zacchaeus has heard about Jesus and he's, he's curious at least about him. He's a wealthy man, but he has no friends really to speak of in his city. So you remember the story, he climbs the sycamore tree, Jesus walks up to the tree, Zacchaeus comes down, Jesus says, I need to go to your house today. Jesus sought out people who were opposed to the gospel and welcomed them in. The rich young ruler comes up to Jesus and he has a conversation with him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, tell me about the commandments. The guy runs through, he says, I've kept all of them. And Jesus looks at him and has compassion on him and says, take everything you have, sell it and give it to the poor. Then you'll have eternal life. Not every conversation Jesus has with a lost person do they walk away with a gospel, but every conversation Jesus has with a person, they walk away having experienced the love of God. And this is what he's left you and I to accomplish. And this is what he's left you and I to do. Y'all, we can change Greenville. We can change our neighborhood. We can change our county. We can change our state. We can change our country. Not primarily through a political process. But primarily through Christians living vibrant, beautiful lives of radical engagement in every place God takes us. There's no place for hateful or harassing speech for a Christian. God has called us to be gracious and he's called us to invite people in. Would you pray with me as we ask that God would make that true of us? Father God, we submit these things to you And we delight in who you are and in your word. God, it is difficult to be gracious in this time for many of us. 
So God, I pray that you would help us to bite our tongue. God, it is difficult in this time for us to speak well. So God, I pray that you would wreck our hearts, that you would encourage us, that your spirit would lead us and guide us, that we would not speak ahead of you, but that we would speak in response to your leading, to your prompting, your guiding. God, that you would call us out of our zones of comfort to engagement in this world. You have said that we are to be salt and light. Help it to be so. And Father, we pray for those who have yet to submit to the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, that today as they're remembering words of condemnation and some of them from themselves. God, that in Jesus they would see life and the forgiveness of sins. You sent your son in the fullness of time to be born to live a perfectly sinless life, to die in their place. And then dying, you raised him anew. Jesus has taken on the penalty and the punishment for our sin and for their sin. Time is short. Time is ending. God, would you call them to salvation? We submit these things to you in Christ's name. Amen.